Let's uh, hear God speak his word this morning. And this is from 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verses 20 through 31. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God and Father, we seek now to hear um, your truth and to grow as your people from your word. I pray that you would be with all of us, although we are sinful people. Help us to be attentive to what you would say. Be with me, though I am a sinful man, as I proclaim your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. Amen. So, I have four weeks left here, um, and I want to spend these four weeks having a couple of conversations in the context of our sermon that are um, in some ways aimed at saying, you know, big things or things I've thought about, but especially the next couple weeks, I want to have some conversations that are in some ways going to be hard, um, parts of them are, um, and that I've struggled to know how to like directly engage with before but that I feel like now that I am leaving and so there's nobody reading into me about it I can maybe try to talk through some stuff in a, in a more direct way than I have before that I think will hopefully help you all as you think through the next seasons of life 
and serve the next person here uh, as, they, as they kind of process through those things well. So here's what we're going to do today. Um, we're going to um, talk first about something that is a challenging reality. I feel like we spend a lot of time talking around and rarely directly address and talk through. And then I'm going to give some encouragements and some practical stuff coming out of that. So hold on with me. But I, this first part, for some of you, uh, might be hard to name. And I'm going to um, walk through it in a way that recognizes that, um, yeah, I don't have a lot of time here. And so hopefully you will engage with me and, you know, give me grace in that. But also I'm going to be very direct talking through it. But so here's the deal. Um, ever since I came here, one of the, like, looming in the background, rarely named, but looming in the background for sort of the old-timers, the folks who have been here were here long before I was here, right? What's tricky is I know a few of you guys engaged in the last, like, five years or even last few years before that, and so obviously it's less so there. But um, is sort of just this reality of the arc of the last, like, 30 or 40 years of Kish's life, and I'm going to get into that arc simply by talking about Sunday attendance, because that is a thing that people often, you know, process through. And it is not a great metric, but we're going to put up, I have the chart, um, um, of the last, like, 30 years, right? That's, um, we're going to talk through, but I want to use that as a way into this conversation. Does that make sense? Because that simple reality is a thing that's been in, in the background for a lot of people, even though they won't talk about it directly. But, um, so, basically, you had, I mean, if you went back, because I did this once, you can go back all the way to the 1840s, right, for Kish, but like, for, you had decades of pretty steady attendance, and then in the late 80s, it started to kind of peak, go up, right, and then you had this kind of peak about 2006, and then it started declining, and for the last 15 years, right, it's easy on a chart to lose, that's 30 years, so, yet then for the last 15 years, it's declined, and um, here's the question that I feel like lots of people talk around, which is, why is that? Um, what's going on with that? And this is the part that's going to be challenging. First, let me name two wrong answers that I feel like I got a lot. Um, the first wrong answer had to do with certain church programs, and especially um, a children's program that went on for a very long time. Um, and so here's the thing. Children's programs are great. We discussed at different points with the elders restarting the Lagos program. And um, they take a lot of resources. They can be really good but they, but, but ending the children's program was not responsible in any way for that chart. And I can show you that because here is the point where we ended the children's program, if you want to go to the next. So, so the idea that a lot of people seem to have was that that drove growth, and when that ended, that caused decline. But that doesn't, that just wasn't the case, right? The program ended seven years after that peak happened. Um, and frankly, it ended because there weren't people coming to it, you know, anymore. It wasn't well attended, and we didn't have a lot of volunteers. Not, uh, so that wasn't the cause of it. Does that make sense? Now, again, um, I know I've never kind of directly dove into that, and um, like I said, there are other reasons you might do a Wednesday night children's program, but th that connection of that story just never worked for me, because I, you know, I kind of looked at it pretty early on and realized whatever was going on, that wasn't the thing that was responsible for that. The other story, and boy, this is, this is the point I'm really only talking about because I'm about to leave, is that a lot of people that I talked to told the story in terms of different pastors at Kish, and just very bluntly um, that the pastor who was two pastors before me drove the growth, and then that my immediate predecessor, not the interim, but before that, um, was responsible for the decline, 
And I am not treading into any assessments of people's ministries or the complex relationships that exist there pastorally. But here are the past, the, the 10 years of different pastors on that chart. Um, so if you want to, or maybe it's not going to show up. Interesting. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, from 2005 to 2009 would have been two pastors ago. So if you look, in 2006 is the peak on that chart. Um, and then in 2010 through 2013, um, 14 was the pastor just before me, and then I'm there at the end. Side note, 2019 is the last year because COVID means <laughs> we have no meaningful numbers since then. But, um, but the thing again about that is that while, is that, I mean, while Eric Guile was here, <laughs> I guess since, since we're talking through it bluntly, while there was a spike in his very first year, the decline really started during his time, and the trend line was pretty consistent. There were a few rough years during the tenure of my predecessor, that it sped up some, but um, it's not really, that, that, that doesn't fit as a story either. Does that make sense? Like, whatever's going on, and again, I am very hesitant to ever talk about pastors in the past, but that's not the thing. So what's going on? Why did we have those struggles? I kind of thought about that a lot because I picked up early on that in the background for most of the people that I talked to, that was the question. And I feel like I had an aha moment like three years ago. And so what happened was um, Elizabeth and I and our kids and then some of the elders, uh, mad props to those elders that went, we, we decided to go to, to DJ and knock on doors in Davis Junction um, to invite people to church to just introduce ourselves because that subdivision felt like it was really separate from things. And um, I met like 40 different families, and it was awkward and fun doing that. Um, my kids were great coming along. But anyway, I remember we got in the car and we're driving back from that and something was just bugging me and I remember looking over at Elizabeth and being like, that was great. None of these people have moved here in the last 15 or 20 years. Like, it's true that some of them had moved to that house, like, the, you know, they had moved from another house, but we met 40 different families and none of them were remotely new to the area. And so that week I went back and um, plotted the population of Ogle County onto that attendance chart um, and was, ve was very struck in that moment. So those of you that live here probably are aware of the fact that Ogle County had about 15 years of rapid growth, um, well, about 20 years of rapid growth starting in the 80s, and that peaked in 2007, 2006, right around that exact same point, and then it's been in decline since then. And when an absolute population number is in decline, that's a painful thing for an area, right? Because if nothing changed, an area would grow because birth rate is slightly above, you know, like above death rate. So you would expect slight growth in an area just if everything was neutral. So that was a moment where I was kind of like, oh. And then that just caused me to notice other things. I remember a few months later, I was just thinking about the fact that I kind of did the math in my head a lot of you guys have had that experience in the last 15 years of being engaged at Kish and raising young people in the church and, um, and having them go off to college and not come back, right? That's been another thing that I know a lot of people have. And I just remember thinking about like, man, um, again, this is a no judgment, just the reality though of looking around and saying, if those young people were still here, there would have been no, you know, no change in that, um, in that trend line. So... Um, that's the hard thing for us to talk about, is that we are 
a church and a community in a place that is struggling and in some ways in demographic decline. And that's the thing I want to name. A couple of things about that, first of all. One is that that is not unique to our area. This is a real struggle for a lot of places and churches. I think we like to blame it on Rockford. Again, I'm being real, <laughs> real direct this Sunday. And it is true that Rockford, if it was sort of like growing and booming as a small city instead of economically struggling, that that would obviously probably change some of that trend line. But the reality is lots of communities are struggling with these deeper shifts, especially more rural communities, which we are, right? That they're struggling with these deeper demographic shifts as people more and more move to cities and suburbs, especially young people do. And that's not also something that you can blame like on the last 10 years. Really like the last 100 years of American history, there's been this series of economic choices and cultural choices made generation after generation that have shifted more and more in that direction. And so, um, and so instead of what, what happened, say, 50 years ago, where, where the norm was that generationally people would live in the same place, right? You know, I mean, that was what kind of perpetuated small communities is that people initially, right, no one would leave, like 100 years ago. And then 50 years ago, the trend was that people would leave, but then people would come back, especially because those rural communities were often a kind of lifeblood or economic center of American cultural life in people's minds. And today, what tends to happen is that... Um, People grow up and move away, and most of them don't come back, and that's a hard thing. We're going to talk about that again in a minute. Um, one other note about that, everything I'm describing there is not absolute, right? It's gradual, and it's different in different areas, and I'm not saying that nobody, like there are some young folks that grew up in these, you know, communities and are still here and are part of our community here at Kish, and um, that's a blessing, and there are, there are people moving to the area. I'm not saying that zero people ever come here, right? But it's a reality, um, and a reality that I think a lot of us have struggled with, both in terms of the church and in terms of the community, and it is a reality that I want to name here up front because it's hard, and I think we don't like to talk about it, but by not naming it, I think sometimes that actually causes us to struggle. So that's the challenging part. What do we do with that? How do we think about that? Well, first I want to talk to our hearts about that a little bit. And then I want to talk practically about some things we need to think about in terms of being the church. But first, in terms of your hearts, there's two things I want to say. And the first, and this is especially true if you are older, there is an appropriate grief that you should feel about that fact. There is a real loss that I think a lot of people that live in communities like ours feel when they think about um, the, the future of those communities, right? Because you have lived in a place for decades and decades and invested in a place and made it your home, and you feel like that place is struggling and you don't know what the future looks like for that place. And that is a real loss. There is, just in general, because of the dislocation that's happened in our culture, there's a loss of a sense of history and continuity and legacy that really is sad, right? I mean, you think about, like, I think about it always in terms of, like, the generational family home. Right? Like that, that for generations and generations, you would have houses that were passed down from, you know, from grandparent to parents to child. And, you know, four or five generations, they would live in and work in this place. And it would become this sort of family legacy connecting them to the past. And that is largely not a thing anymore. And that's, of course, true for towns and communities and regions as well. There is a real grief there. And I want to encourage you to grieve that 
if you feel that grief. It's there because of economic shifts and cultural changes and technology, but it is a real thing that is happening. And the reason I want to encourage you to grieve that, first of all, is because I think if we don't properly acknowledge the sadness that some of us feel about that, it turns into anger instead and into bitterness. I think some of the the sort of bitterness about the world that some of us struggle with is a result of not just saying, it is sad that, I mean, and it's going to be true for me too, right? Like my grandkids almost certainly will live all across the country and won't live in the same community that I'm in. Not for sure, but it's, it's likely just because that's the reality of the world we live in today. It's a sad thing. So feel an appropriate grief. But then, and this is where I want to talk about First Corinthians, um, do not buy into the cultural lie that I think makes that grief work. The cultural lie. Which is that we believe in America that the things that matter, the things that are valuable and good, are the things that are growing. <laughs> we have this sort of deep seed. It's there because of our entrepreneurial kind of DNA. Um, it's there for, for all these reasons. But I think on some gut level, what, when everything I've just said to many of us makes us feel like that means that this place is somehow less important objectively, or less valuable objectively. That the, the cultural lies that the things that are growing, the places that are growing are valuable. I mean, I think maybe we get that from the business world, right? Like, that we live in this world where economically growth equals goodness. And you can see that shift because I remember as a kid, what everything would do is they would advertise how old they were, right? Like established in 1890, whereas, you know, just in the 30 years that I've been alive now, everything is, you know, is showing its value by how new it is, right? And nobody says, like, we've been around for 100 years because they feel like that's suddenly now a mark of disadvantage to them. And it's affected the way we think about other things. I mean, it's the way a lot of churches fall into that same growth mindset. Um, I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who pastored a church, and he was talking about the struggle he had because early on when he came in, they experienced a lot of growth, and this thing happened where everyone started talking about that as the sign that God was blessing the church, right? <laughs> that, you know, that, so the Lord must be really blessing us. We must be doing something right because we're growing. And then it peaked, and suddenly they're like, what do we say now? <laughs> because, because we're not having, seeing that growth anymore. Does that mean that God isn't blessing us anymore? Does that mean that we're not, you know, I mean, ministering and serving him? And it warps our sense of being the church in um, the community. That growing communities with growing churches are places that feel like God is on the move and God cares about them. And when those things aren't true, then often we feel like we are somehow less valuable in the kingdom of God. So that is a lie the culture tells for several reasons. First of all, it's just a lie historically, because that's really only a product of the last few decades of our life in this country. Because one of the things that characterizes the last 50 years is rapid—I know I'm throwing around some cultural ideas, but rapid geographic dislocation, meaning that people move around a lot, and then that causes some areas to grow quickly and others to, you know, to shrink quickly, and that didn't used to be a thing. For most of history, most people stayed in the same places, and you saw that even in the way, like, you know, when I read about people pastoring, historically, it's very, like, you know, we had, you know, two new people at church this Sunday, and that's a big deal because there's not all this give and take in the community, right? Um, so that's untrue historically, but also that is a cultural lie because God disagrees with it. And this is where I want to talk about First Corinthians. So Paul says this to the Corinthian church. In verse 20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so Paul dives into this discussion, and what he's directly addressing for his hearers is that the world that they live in worships power. It's interested in sort of visible, obvious power. For the, he talks about the Jews and the Greeks. For the Jews, their power is sort of divine signs and miracles. And for the Greeks, it's science and philosophy and sort of, you know, the, the engineering kind of power. But for both of them, he says, you live in this world that's interested in the wisdom of power, but God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. He says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so what he's trying to say there is two things at once. First, he's saying just that this is where power truly lies, that the things the power, that the world thinks are powerful, right, the Greeks with all their philosophy and science, that's not true power, that God is the source of true power, that Jesus is the source of true power. But he's also saying something about where God delights to work. That it's often those places that seem weak or powerless or less impressive in the world that God especially values. So verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So he says, consider your calling, meaning consider the fact that you were called by God to his first hearers. Think about the fact that you are the people that he's choosing to save. You're not the impressive, wise, powerful people of the world. And that's actually true of Christianity. One of the interesting things is that, I mean, Rome had this established kind of folk religion, but new religions in Rome tended to spread through the rich people, through the aristocracy, the mystery cults and things like that. It tended to be like wealthy, educated people that were kind of bored with the, you know, the Roman general religion that would get into those things. But Christianity was the opposite. It was slaves, and it was the economically disadvantaged, and women who in Roman society were looked down upon by men. It was the people that were kind of lower down on that um, social hierarchy that became Christians and through which the church spread. God actually was using the least and the weakest members of society to spread it. That doesn't mean there was nobody who was well off or educated, but it means that it was um, the reverse of what you would expect. God's normal pattern is not about starting at the center of things and working your way out. God's normal pattern is by working around the edges and then working towards the center. And so he sums it up, starting in verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So absolutely we should struggle with an appropriate sadness when we think about the challenges of our area that our um, America's economy and culture in many ways has, you know, has kind of left parts of it behind and looks down on it. But we should not think from that that God has left this place behind. We should not think that that somehow reflects his value for this place or his heart for the church in it or for the people in it or his desire to accomplish his mission in it. That we are, even though in the eyes of America there are places that matter more and then places that don't matter, we are at the center still of God's work, God's care for the world, and God's mission and valuing of the world. Maybe we're especially at the center in places like this because, as Paul says, it's the the lowly and despised people and places that God especially delights to work in in the eyes of our world.
Francis Schaeffer, the pastor and theologian, he wrote this great little um, essay discussing the way that the culture warps our expectations and values called No Little People, No Little Places. And he says this. First, he, he comments on this trend. He says, Nowhere more than in America are Christians caught in the 20th century syndrome of size. Size will show success. If I am consecrated, there will necessarily be large quantities of people, dollars, etc. This is not so. Not only does God not say that size and spiritual power go together, but he reverses this, especially in the teachings of Jesus, and tells us to be deliberately careful not to choose a place too big for us. We all tend to emphasize big works and big places, but all such emphasis is of the flesh. To think in such terms is simply to hearken back to the old, unconverted, egoist, self-centered me. This attitude taken from the world is more dangerous to the Christian faith than fleshly amusement or practice. That idea he's naming, what we were just talking about, that what's valuable is what's big and what's flashy, size. And then Schaefer meditates on this fact that, so Moses, if you remember in Exodus, God calls him to go and he's afraid and feels weak and powerless. And so God... Um, gives him his staff, his rod, and tells him that he can use it to perform these signs. And that it's actually this staff of Moses that's set apart as um, the sort of means through which God does um, the signs in Egypt to make clear that it's not Moses himself that's doing it. But Shaver's like, look, rod, the rod of Moses sounds crazy. Like, it's just a stick. <laughs> he says it's just this stick that Moses carries around that is set apart for the purposes of God, and that it is through that stick that God accomplishes his work. And so he sums it up like this. He says, The people who receive praise from the Lord Jesus will not, in every case, be the people who held leadership in this life. There will be many persons who were sticks of wood that stayed close to God and were quiet before him and were used in power by him in a place which looks small to men. Each Christian is to be a rod of God in the place of God for him. We must remember throughout our lives that in God's sight there are no little people and no little places. Only one thing is important, to be consecrated persons in God's place for us at each moment. Those who think of themselves as little people in little places, if committed to Christ, and living under his lordship in the whole of life may, by God's grace, change the flow of our generation. So I love that, and I love the whole essay by, by Schaefer. But especially for us, here's what I want you to hear. Regardless of the eyes of the world, this is not a little place. You are not a little person, nor are the people around us somehow less important, because there are no little places. Places, and there are no little people. God is dis delighted to work in each place that he has placed us as his people to build up his kingdom and glorify his name and do things that in his eyes are great, even if from our vision they seem kind of modest or unimpressive. So to summarize that, one of the real hard challenges that we have to navigate, that you all will have to continue to navigate in the coming years as a church, and as a part of the communities that we're in, is that we are in and have been for a while and probably will continue to face significant decline. And that, expects, that affects our experience of our communities, that affects our experience of the church. But that does not mean that you should lose hope and be discouraged. It is okay to feel sad 
and grieved that. But that does not mean that there are not people that need to know Jesus and that there are not hurting people that need to be loved and cared for and that there are not opportunities to serve him and opportunities to be the church in the world. In some places, fr- frankly, some of those things are more needful now. With, you know, we more need the church in places like this that are struggling for other reasons than we did when we were booming. So all of that said, then let me offer three practical encouragements coming out of that. If that's true, that on the one hand we have these challenges, on the other hand, Jesus cares and wants us to be the church. Let me give you three practical things I want to encourage you to try to just internalize and think about as you look towards the future. And the first is that we need to pursue relationships and not look to programs to do ministry for us. That we need to pursue relationships and not look at programs to do ministry for us. I have a dear friend who planted a church seven years ago in um, a big city. It's in the, like, downtown of the big city. The Lord really miraculously provided this building for them and stuff. And they have just been booming for the last seven years. And, um, and I remember him commenting to me a few months ago. He, he said, you know, Eric, I kind of live in terror for the day that we um, aren't booming anymore because we're going to have to confront the fact that we aren't doing ministry at all. He said, here's the thing. Like, we literally just bought a building and put out a sign, and people come every Sunday, and more people come, and like, we don't have a clue. We're not evangelizing people. I don't think anyone in my church even invites people to church. (laughs) You know, like, people are just coming because we're here and because we're in this area that's doing that, and I'm grateful for that, and I'm trying to steward that, but I am terrified of this day down the road when that stops, and we suddenly have to realize, man, we aren't doing ministry. One of the things about living in a growing area— um, which we really experienced back in the 90s here in this area, I think, at Kish, was that if you are just a building that lets people know you're here, right, and does stuff, has some programs that people will come, because there's lots of new people moving to the area whose minds aren't made up about whether they're going to go to church or where they're going to go to church or any of that, right? Um, they're kind of open to new things, and so they'll come check stuff out, and you can reach them. And that's not a bad thing. That's a blessing, right? I mean, be glad that you can reach those people, and, you, you know, those programs are a good way to steward that season, But in an area that's struggling with decline, it just doesn't work like that anymore. Because, frankly, there aren't lots of new people moving here whose minds aren't made up. Every, pretty much everyone in our communities on Sunday morning has decided whether they're going to church or not, right? There's not people that are like, I don't know, should we find a new church? And because of that, the only way that those minds are going to change is by them being in relationship with people that love Jesus who help change that talk with them about that, who share this different way of viewing the world, who share the hope of Jesus with them, and see that change. That's actually my concern with how much some of us have fixated on the idea of programs. Uh, At times when we've talked about desiring to see people meet Jesus or see growth, is that I think that's often a way of not addressing the underlying need that we have to intentionally meet our neighbors and love them and tell them about Jesus which is the main way that the church is built up. In fact, let me just—this is going way off script, but something the historian in me is always fascinated by that most of us don't realize is from about the year 150 to about the year 300, the early church um, did not allow visitors because the Roman Empire would send out agents to take notes on who the elders and pastors of the church were and then arrest them all. Um, One of the main jobs of deacons in the early church was as door bouncers, and if they didn't know you, they wouldn't let you into the church. 
right? They, they would actually stand at the door, and if you didn't have someone who knew you well to vouch for you, they wouldn't let you into the worship service because you might be an agent of the Roman government. And the church grew by like 20 times in size during that 150 years, and they could not have people just come visit the church. The only way that they grew is because Christians would build relationships and get to know unbelievers and draw them through the process. And then once they were at that point where they were interested in following Jesus and being part of a church, then they would come to the church service. So th- th- that relational kind of transmission of Christianity is foundational to how the church grows. Anyway, but, but all of that said— I just want to encourage us to look to that, to pursuing and building meaningful relationships within which we share the hope of Jesus with people. That's the foundation for how we're going to see people come to meet Jesus. There aren't programs that can replace that. Second, we need to be seeking to serve our communities rather than leeching off of them. We need to serve our communities rather than leeching off of them. Um, To explain this, So the prophet Jeremiah is writing to Israel in exile, and in the later part of Jeremiah, and um, he says this to them. There's these false prophets that are coming and saying, look, just like hunker down and wait, and you're going to get restored to the promised land soon. But Jeremiah comes and he says this in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So these people living in Babylon. He says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then here's the key verse. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city, of the community that I've placed you in. In its welfare you will actually find your welfare. The church should be a place that is a blessing to its community. (laughs) That that even people who aren't Christians, even people who dislike Christianity, should be able to look at the church as a community within the community and say, I am glad, in a real sense, that it's there. Because of the way it serves and cares for people, blesses people, um, builds up the community that it's in. And oftentimes... So many churches live in isolation from the community, which is our struggle, and I'll mention, because we have some particular challenges there. Some churches are even openly hostile to the community, right, and kind of trying to actively tear the community around it down. And the problem with that is that, again, when you're in a season of growth in a community, I don't think that matters as much, because everything's growing and doing all right, and so you can see that. But when you're in a community that's struggling, then it's very easy for the community to become bitter towards the church that is not seeking the good of the community. It's very easy for the community to look at the church as a drain on resources, and there's not that many resources. And so we also, in that place that's struggling, need to be really mindful of being a place that's blessing and serving our community. Now, I say that, and we have a special challenge, frankly, because of our location as a church. Because um, while we see ourselves as a part of the communities of Stillman and Davis Junction and Byron, right, and that's where all of you guys most of you guys come from, uh, I mean, because we're not physically in one of those communities, they sometimes struggle to feel like we're there. And I frankly regularly meet people in those communities that have no idea that we exist. But, um, but that shouldn't be a, a discouragement. That should just be a reminder that we need to be even more intentional about thinking about how to do that. 
right? How to be present in those communities and not present like hang up some flyers to get people to come here, but present in ways that are blessing those communities so that they can be helped. I mean, because they need that help and they're going to continue to need that help in the coming years. So seek to serve our communities. And then lastly, we need to seek to be working for the long term. We need to be working for the long term rather than short-term gains. The kind of ministry that I'm talking about, building relationships and serving our community, that is going to be something that takes investing years. It's slow, and, um, and it's not going to have the same immediate results as sort of like a big program or service that gets some people to show up. But the problem with those sorts of short-term things is that what tends to happen is that churches often pursue the low-hanging fruit in terms of ministry. They, there's, there's certain people that are going to be kind of high-functioning and are already following Jesus, and churches kind of just compete to get those people. And frankly, that's always a problem. It's even, in, even in a growing place, it's not healthy for churches to just like move people between churches, right? That you want to see people saved, and you want to see new people meeting Jesus and stuff. But especially in a place that's struggling demographically, where there's not as much low-hanging fruit, if that's what you're chasing— it's not going to lead to long-term health and growth. Instead, we need to be um, planting seeds and investing in people in a way that's, hope, that's, that's saying for, for years to come, for decades to come, in a sense, we're trying to, to help people to grow and be more like Jesus and build a place that is healthy and loving. There might not be low-hanging fruit, but there is a harvest. It's just that we're going to have to do some work, uh, planting and watering and reaping to see that harvest come in. All right, so that's our calling, to recognize the challenges of this place, but that Jesus cares about this place despite its challenges, and to try to minister in ways that connect with and help that. And as we close, I just want to give one other helpful reminder, which is that we know also that God cares about places like this because that is where Jesus came. Um, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is like this mysterious place in our minds, but, I mean, Bethlehem's like a backwater tiny town, right? He's not born in Rome. He's not even born in, like, Jerusalem. Bethlehem's like 400 people when Jesus is born. Like, the main reason we know that he was—that the word in in the story probably means upper room rather than, like, you know, a hotel is because there weren't enough people in Bethlehem for there to be a hotel. <laughs> like, you know, it was a tiny little place. And, and then he was raised in Nazareth, which is the backwater kind of, like—it's like the Appalachia of— <laughs> um, of, of his world. In fact, one of his disciples, when he first hears about Jesus, literally says, can anything good come from Nazareth? <laughs> and, then, and then he ministers in Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel that is, um, that is not the cultural center. It's not the south with Jerusalem and Jericho, but it's, you know, it's that kind of part. And, I mean, he only goes to the, the heart of Israel a couple times, mainly to die in Jerusalem. And even there with Israel, right? I mean, Israel's this tiny place. It's not, I mean— you know, you, can, you see it on a map today. I don't know if you had that experience. I remember as a kid finally seeing a picture in modern stuff of, like, how big the country of Israel was and being like, why, why, why is that this place that I keep hearing all this stuff about? Like, it's tiny. Um, it is in that kind of place that God chose to come as a human being and work salvation and redemption. Where it, it is a place like that where he played out his story in Jesus. In that little place with those little people. And so again, that should speak to us the reality that God is not invested in that kind of worldly sense of like, here's the centers of power, here's what's valuable, but rather that it's in places like ours. 
that God chose to come and work salvation for mankind, and it continues to be in places like ours where he is moving and saving and healing and redeeming and restoring people. And so while we acknowledge the challenges of our place, what I'd invite you to do in this coming season is to see the significance of that and that this is a place where we get to be God's servants working to build up his kingdom in a place that he values and cares for. Let's have that heart. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, as we seek to be your church here, I pray, first of all, for our communities. For Byron and Stillman and Davis Junction and Monroe Center, for the other places that people come from, for, for Rockford, for Ogle County. Lord, um, you have called us to seek the good of our city, and there are a lot of challenges that this place faces. I acknowledge that, and I don't have easy answers to those challenges, Lord, and I don't know that there are easy answers, but I pray that you would be in our community, helping those who are struggling, helping those who grieve a future that they maybe dreamed of when they were younger and aren't going to feel like they're not seeing now, those who just are sad about um, people they love that aren't here anymore, that have moved away. Father, I pray that you would be comforting those hearts, help those who are economically challenged, And help us, to all of those people, to be a church, to be Jesus to them. Help us to look around at our neighbors, at our friends, at the members of our community, and see in them eternal souls with inestimable worth that you love and value, and that we are invited to love and share Jesus with. Help us to work for the good of our communities. Help us to work for the long term, planting and watering and trusting that you will bring the harvest. And help us to do all of that recognizing that Jesus values little people, little places like us. Because in the kingdom there is in truth no little people and no little places. Pray this all in his name. Amen.